Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John, the first epistle to John. It's toward the end of your Bible. So if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Making sure you're awake this morning. 1 John chapter 4. There have been some pretty famous love stories throughout history that have captured people's attention and imagination. You can think of Anthony and Cleopatra. You can think of Romeo and Juliet. You even have modern day romances where you're trying to keep up with the Kardashians. And you try to keep up with Justin Bieber. And then you've got... Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston and who's married this month and this year and this decade and all those types of things. But most Hollywood romances end in heartbreak. They usually end in divorce. But there is one particular Hollywood romance that was very enduring. It lasted 50 years. It was between Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward met during the stage production of Picnic, and they shortly married after filming the movie The Long Hot Summer in 1958. And they stayed faithfully married for 50 years until his death in 2008. They were happily devoted to one another as as a Hollywood couple that stayed together. And the media was really intrigued as why Paul Newman didn't step out on his wife. And so the media would always ask him, how come there's not infidelity going on? How have you stayed married so long in Hollywood all these years? And, and, and men, this is a great answer. So pay attention, men, if somebody asks you this. He says, I have steak at home. Why would I go out for a hamburger? That was his answer. Our culture is obsessed with love. We sing about love. We use the word indiscriminately. I love rock and roll. Put another dime in the jukebox, baby. We sing about rock and roll. When a man loves a woman, I want to love you. How deep is your love? Crazy in love. We, we use the word so often. I love pizza. I love my dog sometimes. I love my cat. I love to ski. Oh, I love that movie. I love my grandkids. I love to go hiking. I love my wife. I love Jesus. I love, I love, I love. What does it mean? We often think about that 80s song by Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? It's just a secondhand emotion. With so much talk about love in our culture, it seems like we'd get it down, right? We'd know what it means to love. We would know what love is. We'd have it figured out by now. Well, today is the second Sunday of Advent. We started Advent last week. Last week was the hope candle. This Sunday is the love candle. The love candle. It's oftentimes called the Bethlehem candle because that's when Jesus came in the flesh to be born in Bethlehem because God so loved the world. And so before I light the love candle for our second Sunday here of Advent, the the Bethlehem candle, let me read to you the Bethlehem account in Luke chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So on this second Sunday of Advent, we light what has commonly been called the Bethlehem candle or the love candle the candle of God's love. And so that's the question we're going to ask this morning. How do I experience the love of God this Christmas? Is it just an indiscriminate word that we throw around? What does it really mean that God is love? Well, we come to that famous passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 4 where those words are right before us. So let's read together in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Excuse me. This passage of Scripture is thoroughly Trinitarian. Now, what do I mean by that? In this passage, you clearly see the doctrine of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, in order for us to truly understand the love of God, it is wrapped up for us in an understanding of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the Trinity. Many of you know and many of you own the book that came out back in April, the book I wrote, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel. So I've been spending the past two years, three years thinking about this. As a matter of fact, I need your prayers because Monday night, tomorrow night, I'm engaged in a live YouTube debate with another apologist who's a Unitarian. He doesn't believe in the Trinity. He doesn't believe that 
Uh, Jesus is fully God. And so I've never done a live debate. I've done a, some, some podcast debate, but this is a live YouTube debate. Some of you have asked about the link tomorrow on Facebook. That will be on the church's link and on my personal link if you want to watch at 7 o'clock and see how that thing goes down. Um, so I do need your prayers for that tomorrow night. But these, before we look at this passage of Scripture, we need to understand three crucial truths about the Trinity. Just This is real brief. And I think you know this by now, but we just need to establish a definition. And there's three truths surrounding the Trinity. Number one, there's only one God, not a plurality of gods. There's not three gods. It's not that Jesus is a God, the Father is a God, and the Holy Spirit is a God. There's one God, one in essence. All three share the same being as God. That's truth number one. Truth number two, yet in this one God... Three distinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, share that same essence as God. So you have one God in being, three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And truth number three, all three persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal. The Father is not greater than the Son. The Son's not greater than the Father. The Holy Spirit's not less. There's not a hierarchy. They are all co-equal and co-eternal. One God Three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. And so we need to understand God's love for us is wrapped up in the Trinity. How does the Father love us? How does Jesus love us? How does the Holy Spirit minister that love to us? So we would not experience the full love of God without it coming to us through Father, Son, and Holy. Holy Spirit. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, we are going to see three characteristics of God's love for us. And, and why do I choose three? Why do I choose three? Because of the Trinity, right? Okay, so Father, Son, Spirit, you see it in this passage of Scripture. So here's the first. The Father's eternal nature is the essence of love. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us one, love one another, for love is from God. The love that we have comes from God. God's the source of love. God's the overflowing of love. And then in verse 8, we have those famous words, God is love. God is love. It doesn't say God is loving, which wouldn't be wrong. It says God is love. Now, there's three other places in the New Testament where it tells us what God is. In John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So God is spirit, is, God is spirit. He's worthy of all of our worship. Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. So God is spirit. God is a consuming fire, which means he's holy. He must punish sin. And then 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's absolutely pure and righteous. So God is spirit, God is a consuming fire, God is light, and here it says God is love. Now we need to be really careful with this. Because some people have taken this one attribute of God, God is love, and they've elevated it to a level that it's pitted against all of God's other attributes. 
In other words, they'll say something like this. God is love, and that's his chief attribute. So therefore, God would never, ever send anybody to hell for not believing in Jesus. That doesn't sound loving. Or God is so loving that he wouldn't want to tell me how to live my life. And if it's in conflict with the Bible, I, 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 I wouldn't have to change my life, would I? Because after all, God is love. God is love. But he is also holy, he's also pure, he's also a consuming fire, he's also light. And so we need to make sure that when we define love, we take the definition from God himself and not from sentimental emotions or or things that we as sinful humans start out with, like lust or infatuation or things like that. Pastor Andrew read this earlier from Exodus 34, 6. It's the Old Testament way of expressing that God is love. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, we're going to say this word together, but don't turn to your neighbor because you might spit on him, okay? It's the word chesed. Chesed, okay? It's that Hebrew word, chesed. Steadfast love, chesed. It's the, it's the deepest Word that the Old Testament uses to describe the love of God. It's a tenacious, loyal, steadfast covenant love where God says, I'm going to love you no matter what. You may never love me back or you may have a hard time loving me back. And and it may be a hard road going forward, Israelites, but I'm going to stick with my love for you because I love you. It's a hesed type of love. God is love. Have you thought about that? Not just God is loving, but God is love. It's his very essence. It's his nature. So here's something to think about. God's love does not grow or shrink. God does not fall in love with you, and God does not fall out of love with you. God is unchanging. Therefore, his love is unchanging. Now, a Dutch theologian, Gerhardus Voss, made a very powerful statement that you have to stop and think about. Let me give you his statement and then let you think about it for a second. Then I'm going to move on. He said, the reason God will never stop loving you is because he never began. The reason God will not stop loving you is because he never began. Now, what are you talking about? He never began loving me? No. Listen to Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. When did God start loving you? In eternity past before time. When's God going to stop loving you? Wrong question. (laughs) We're asking time-bound questions. When did God start loving me? When did God stop loving me? Wrong question. God is love. And he just loves me. Well, how can God do that? Because he's God. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, because, see, you and I as humans can't cause God to love us. We can't force God to love us. We can't make God love us. We can't do something to say, God, you're going you're gonna to love us. God simply loves us because God chose to love us. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God love the Israelites? 
Because God wanted to love the Israelites. Why does God love you? It's not because he is forced to love you or he has to love you or he's obligated to love you. Why does God love you? Because he just loves you. So God is never lonely. God wasn't like lonely up in heaven. Oh man, I'm so lonely. I better create some humans to fill a void in my life. No, Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally existing in eternity past before the creation of the world and they were perfectly fine together in perfect fellowship. So God has no needs. But there's an interesting passage of Scripture in Zephaniah 3.17. I often go back to this. When's the last time you read Zephaniah? Zephaniah 3.17. You may want to just remember this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will quiet you with his love. That word quiet in the Hebrew language can mean quiet or it can also mean renew. God will renew you. God will renew your strength. How? With his love. And he'll rejoice over you with singing. This is the only verse in the Bible where God sings. And who's he singing over? He's singing over his people. So, God is love. It's central to his very character. He loves because he wants to love. He loves because he is love. We don't force him to love. We can't make him love. He loves because he is love. That's the Father. Now, this is not an abstraction. You have to ask the question, okay, if God is love, how is that concretely demonstrated to me in a real way? And John doesn't leave us in the dark. John does show us how God concretely manifested that love. So here's the second truth. The first truth is about the Father. What do you think the second truth is going to be about? Jesus. All right, the Son. Okay, you're, you're paying attention. That's great. All right, number two. The Father demonstrated his love by sending his only Son. Okay, if God the Father is love... How did he demonstrate that love concretely to us? Well, John tells us very clearly there in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. And that word made manifest means to put on display, to shine brightly for all of us to see. How did God concretely put his love on display? What did he do? God sent his only son into the world. It's very similar to the language of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here it says he sent his only. His only. Some of your translations may say only begotten. Some of your translations may say one and only. It's a very important word. And it's always attached to Jesus. It means unique, one of a kind. Only. Unique. Only begotten. It's the same word used in John 3.16. It refers to Jesus being the greatest gift God could ever give. It's his one and only unique, one-of-a-kind, only begotten son that he gave. He sent. Now, John likes to use the word God sent his only begotten son. 
God gave his only begotten son. That's the language John likes to use, gave and sent. What language does Paul use to talk about Jesus coming? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul here says God did not spare his son. Didn't spare him. What does that mean? Jesus didn't stay in heaven. He came to earth as fully God and fully man, and he was not spared what? He wasn't spared God's justice. He wasn't spared the cross. He wasn't spared the punishment that we deserved. He was not spared the crucifixion. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's the inexpressible gift? Jesus, that God gave, God sent. Now, John here provides two truths about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. God sent Jesus into the world. That's the concrete way that God showed his love. He sent Jesus into the world, but there's a purpose as to why. Look at, look at what John tells us there. Okay, So, look at the end of verse 9. In this is love that God... In this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that what? Okay, so that what? So that we might live through him. We might have life through Jesus. Not just abundant life now, but eternal life in heaven. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. What's eternal life? What's life? That they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So if Jesus gives us life, what does that assume before we have a relationship with Jesus? We are dead. We are dead before we have Christ. If Christ comes that we might live, it assumes that before Christ we were dead. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all were spiritually dead before Jesus gave us life. So the only way you can have life, life now, spiritually, life eternally, is through Jesus. So that we might live through him. Which means he's the only way you and I can have life. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not say, I am a good way. I am one of many ways. Try me out and see how it works. He says, no, definitively, I am the way, the truth, the life. You're not getting to the Father except through me. You're not going to have life except through me. You're not going to have eternal life except through me. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. Who's the one mediator between God and man? The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
So the first thing John tells us here is that God sent Jesus so that we might live through him. We might have life. We might have spiritual life, dynamic life, eternal life, abundant life. We would have life in Christ. But then the second thing, the reason why Jesus was sent, (coughs) excuse me, we see this in verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for our sins. Just a big theological word in the Bible, propitiation means Jesus came as a substitute. Jesus came in our place to take the wrath, to take the sin, to take the punishment that we deserved. He died in our place. He took the justice that was supposed to come upon us. He took the the wrath, God's anger against sin that was supposed to come upon us. Jesus says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So if you don't trust Jesus, the wrath of God remains upon you. So Jesus came as the propitiation to take that wrath. So God's love for us was not just a mere abstraction where God said, Okay, I love you. Send us like a Hallmark card and you open it. Okay, cool. Or a Hallmark movie at Christmas, all 25 of them. Um, and I'm not saying anything against them because I watch them too, okay? So, um, but it was concrete. It was, an, it was a definitive act of God where he concretely, literally said, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you. How am I going to do that? I'm going to send Jesus so that you'll have life for him, through him, and that his death would satisfy God's justice. He would be the propitiation. And also look at this, this idea in verse 14. John echoes it, and look down in verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent, there's the same language, has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we might have life through Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the Savior of the world. Why do you think when the angel showed up to announce the birth of Jesus to Joseph, he said these words in Matthew 1.21? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be Savior of the world. He will be the propitiation to take away God's anger against our sin. He will give us life. Why did God do all this? Because God loved us. Do we deserve any of this? No. God did it because he loved us. Romans 5, 8 through 9. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did God show his love for us? We were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to clean our act up. God sent Jesus to die for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So, Truth number one, God the Father is love. Truth number two, he sent Jesus as his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins. So what do you think the third truth is going to talk about? Holy Spirit. Third, the Father continually perfects his love in us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
God's love is perfected. That means God's love is continually being, being um, shown to us. God's love is being fulfilled in us. We continually experience that love of God. So how do, you, how do you experience the love of God? How does that love of God come to you experientially? Well, John tells us. Look at verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Because, <coughs> excuse me, he's given us of his spirit. He's given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit, he's given us. Now, think of all the actions that God the Father is doing here. God gave Jesus. God sent Jesus. Now God gave the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting, the verb tense that's used there for God giving the Holy Spirit. It's in a verb tense that means that God gave us the Holy Spirit at a point in time, and that gift continues to be experienced all the way up into the present and will never die out. In other words, it's a permanent gift of the Holy Spirit. What John's saying is once God gives you the Holy Spirit, he never takes him away from you. It's a permanent indwelling. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, Jesus came at just the right time, born of a virgin, born to die on the cross. And then look at verse 6. Because you're sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this passage clearly teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father, God is love sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross to give us life, to be the Savior of the world. Three, God perfects that love in us by the Holy Spirit he's given to us. And Paul just succinctly puts it all together in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See all three persons there? The G, it's in reverse order. It's the Son, the Father, the Spirit. But all three persons are there. Okay, so how do you respond to this love that comes to you from the Trinity? Now, you can leave here having a better understanding of Trinitarian love. God is love. Jesus came. I've got the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Pastor Sean, for giving me a lesson to show me how the Trinity shows up in this passage of Scripture. I can leave here knowing a little bit more Bible knowledge. But how do you respond? We're not left in the dark because John tells us how to respond. In this passage of Scripture, you've got the response. Let me show you four ways that we should respond to God's love, especially this Christmas. And these aren't rocket science. These aren't profound. These are just things that we need to be reminded of from time and time again. Here's response number one. Have you come to know and believe God's love for you? Look at verse 16. What does John say? So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. We've come to know it and we've come to believe it. In the original language, that's a settled conviction. You've come to know by experience. You're thoroughly convinced that God not only is love, but that he loves you. And there's no question in your mind that God loves you. 
You know, you can have a great theology in your head of God's love, but not experience it in your heart. And here's my fear for a lot of Christians. You know, when people first become Christians, they're excited about the Lord, aren't they not? You want to be around new believers because they're excited about their faith. And then they get their head filled with knowledge, which is good. And sometimes the heart grows cold. And there's a lot of Christians who have really good heads filled with theology, but their hearts are distant from the Lord. They don't sense that love of God. So I'm asking you this morning is not do you cognitively know in your head that God is love and walk out here, God is love. Can you say like this passage of Scripture says there in verse 16, I've come to know it and I've come to believe it for me that God is love and that he loves me. I know it. Okay, response number two. Again, this is Trinitarian. The first one is, do you know the Father's love for you? Second response is Trinitarian. It's going to talk about Jesus. Have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, your Savior, who died on the cross for you? Have you confessed that? Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Have you confessed that? Now, confess is more than just you walk around saying, I believed in Jesus. To confess in the Bible does mean, yes, you say it with your mouth, but the word often carries the idea that you live a life for everyone to see that says definitively, Jesus is my Savior and Lord, and my entire life is wrapped up in showing you Him. I'm going to confess Him. I'm going to proclaim Him. It's not just, I'm going to share the gospel. There's, there's part of that, I'm going to share the gospel. But it's the totality of your life is, my entire life is a confession. My entire life is an open book, walking around, showing everybody that Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is everything to me. I honor him. Okay, response number three. Of course, it's going to be about the Holy Spirit. Do you rest confidently and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. God is love and the Father loves you. Jesus loves you by dying on the cross. How do you really experience that? In your heart through the Holy Spirit who lives there, ministering that love to you. Jesus said in John 14, 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I like that Jesus says he's not just going to give us help, but a helper, a divine person, the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to give you that grace, to give you that power, to equip you, to comfort you, to live inside of you, to never leave you. Now, here's the fourth response. And I've kind of cheated in Bible study here because I've left the last thing for the, this is Paul, This is John's main point, okay? I've given you all this theology, but here's John's main point of this passage. Theology aside, here's the main point that John's trying to get across, and it's this. Response number four. Does God's love for you serve as the chief motivation for you to love others? That's John's point. It's actually the main point of the passage. And how do I know that? Well, look at verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another. It's not a command, but it's a strong exhortation. Let us love one another. Let's get busy about loving one another. Okay, look at verse 11. That is a command. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Whether we like it or not, there is a strong command upon us to love one another. This is John's main point of the passage. Here's the main point of this entire passage. The more we enjoy God's love for us, the more that love will overflow to others. The more we enjoy God's love for us, the more that love's going to overflow to others, which means if you're not experiencing God's love in your heart, it's hard to give it out to others. Now, the love that John uses here, you know the word agape, it's a sacrificial, unconditional, selfless type of love that seeks the best of others. And it's in the present tense, so it can be translated this way, whether we like it or not. Okay, here's the way it's translated in the original language. Let us, as a command, because we ought to, keep on continually, sacrificially loving each other selflessly. That's, that's what John's telling us here. Loving one another selflessly, unconditionally, to the glory of God and the good of others. Isn't not this the great commandment and the second great commandment? Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when I read John, and he says, okay, Sean, love others continually, selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally. Everything in my being says, now, wait a minute, John. I don't want to do that. You know why? Because I'm selfish, and I'm narcissistic, and I'm complacent, and I'm busy. And as a matter of fact, other people don't deserve my love. Because after all, they're just kind of stinky, and they're kind of rude. And I have better things to do with my time than mess around with annoying people that get in my way. Why do I have to be commanded to love? I don't want to. Now, look at verse 8. Look at the warning in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Woo! You may need to question your salvation, John's saying, if you're not a loving person. If you are a loveless, bitter person who's consumed with self-centered narcissism, you may need to ask the question, do you know God? Because if you're a loveless Christian, you're not resembling your father. Think about how God loved you. But I don't want to love other people. Other people are, are hard to get along with. Other people hurt me. Other people annoy me. Other people are frustrating. Other people aren't as, uh, they don't do it as good as I do. Uh, whatever excuse you can think of for not loving another person, you make that excuse and then you stop and you turn around and say, now wait a minute. What if God had that attitude towards us? And Jesus said, Father, I don't want to go down there. I don't want to die for them. I don't want to go to the cross for them. They're annoying. They bug me. They always get in my way. They never repay me. 
They sin against me. They hurt my feelings. Do you and I deserve God's love? Absolutely not. Was God obligated to send Jesus as our Savior? Absolutely not. Did God do that? Yes. Why? Because he loved us. Now, because of that love that God shows for us that we don't deserve, we, in turn, are to love others with the type of love that God has shown us. Whether they deserve it or not, whether it's on your timetable or not, whether they ever reciprocate or not, we are called to love consistently. So this Christmas, I'm going to ask you four questions. Are you a person that has come to know and believe deep in your heart that God is love? Number two, are you a person this Christmas that boldly confesses that Jesus is Lord? He's your Lord, He's your Savior, living your life for Christ. Number three, are you a person this Christmas who is thankful for the Holy Spirit in your life, that that relies upon the power of the Holy Spirit, that that he lives inside of you, he's never going to leave you? Do you trust and rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit? And here's the fourth thing. Are you a person this Christmas that loves others with that sacrificial, unconditional, selfless love that brings ultimate glory to God? What better time than Christmas 2019 than to know that God is love? He sent Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can turn around and love each other with that type of love. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And would you evaluate your heart this morning to see where your love is? Has your love for God grown cold and has your love for others grown cold? And if your love for God's grown cold and your love for others has grown cold, you are in a dangerous position. But this morning you can confess that sin and receive refreshing. You can receive help from the Lord this morning. So would you just spend some time going to the Lord this morning and thinking about our God being a God of love. Spirit, I sense your presence in here because there's a silence. And Lord, when things are this quiet, it means people are doing business with you. People are praying. People are examining their hearts. People are crying out to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for these times of quiet that we have after hearing your word preached that we can respond. We can pray. We can ponder. We can think about what we've heard. And we can cry out to you in our hearts. And so, Father, thank you that you are a God who's not just loving, but you, you are love. And you didn't just say it or just send a postcard in a mere abstraction, but you did it very definitely with sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in the flesh. Thank you for being born in Bethlehem. Thank you for being the one who we have life through. Thank you that you are the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that you're the Savior of the world. Holy Spirit, thank you that you've come to live inside of us, that you'll never leave us, that you empower us, you encourage us, you embolden us. May we be a people this week that walk out of this room today with assurance of our salvation, 
assurance of your love for us, God. Lord, if there's anybody in this room today that's never experienced the love of God through trusting in Christ alone, would today be the day that they realize that they're spiritually dead and they need life, and would they cry out to Jesus to forgive them of their sins and give them the life that they desperately need? And Lord, help us to be those that love others. As hard as it is at times, as painstaking, it requires patience and it requires the Holy Spirit. It requires the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, just give us the grace to be loving. And I mean really loving, Lord, not just saying it, but backing it up with action. And Lord, help us to love those that may be hard to love. Those people you've placed in our lives that may be difficult. Maybe somebody at work or somebody, a relative, or somebody that just it makes it very difficult to love. Would you give us the grace to do that? And Lord, help us to show, help us to be specific in how we show that love this, this Christmas season. And when we do it all for your glory and for the good of your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.